Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello. Um, weird introduction. Sorry a bit late there. I was just actually chatting to our two brilliant guests, just going through the show, and then I saw the comments going, stop being so late. Uh, so that is extremely rude of me, but I'm here now, so calm down, everyone. Don't have a riot in the comment section. Blimey, come on. It's a lovely day out, depending on where you are. Let's all just calm down. Right, what are we talking about today? I should probably know this. Um, we're talking about, oh, economic calamity. So there's this... This is in the context, obviously, of the Bank of England hiking interest rates by 0.5 points. That's the highest uh, increase for 27 years. Um, this isn't cheery. This sh- uh, look, none of these shows are cheery these days, but we have to work with what we've got. Uh, they're predicting a recession lasting more than a year, uh, inflation hitting 13%, and a 5% drop in people's living standards. Now, we've already gone through the longest squeeze in living standards since the early 19th century, since the Battle of Waterloo. That's how long that squeeze in people's living standards are. Why was that? Because of the financial crash and the ideologically driven austerity that was then imposed, of course, by Dave Cameron and George Osborne, who is the biggest villain of the last 12 years. I'm going to write about this sometime. Worse than Boris Johnson, worse than anyone. George Osborne. Anyway, even before the financial crash hit, living standards were already stagnating for many as well. Um, Between 2004 and 2008, the bottom half's income stagnated. The bottom third actually fell. So we've been talking now about two decades of stagnating and declining living standards for a massive chunk of the British population. Uh, We're talking about, you know, people's wages basically being what they were back in 2008. That's when Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl was top of the charts. It was a while ago. And now that annoying, catchy song is stuck in your heads. Apologies for that. Now, for younger generations, millennials, um, they were told financial crash, once in a lifetime crisis, guys. Uh, and then they got co- the COVID crisis where they, younger people, if we're going to be generous, under 40s, formed a cordon sanitaire amongst the older and vulnerable populations, overwhelmingly, obviously many at risk of long COVID, but not of uh, fatal complications, but they took a big hit to their living standards. And now they're about to suffer another one. Uh, it's not been great for millennials or many millennials. Millennials, of course, is not a... Uh, is not a homogenous group. It includes people who are wealthy and doing fine, but includes huge numbers of people who are very insecure because of the housing crisis, the jobs crisis, the welfare state crisis, the public services crisis, we could go on. Um, Now, and the insecure jobs crisis, of course, I think I mentioned that. Um, What I want to know, not an economist, just to make that clear, I think you already knew that. What's driving all of this? Why are we in such a mess? Uh, Is there a simple answer to it? How bad is this actually going to be? I mean, I've obviously asked if our economic Armageddon is going to happen. I mean, the apocalypse. Now, it's not going to be apocalypse because we're still going to be alive, probably. I mean, <laughs> given the twists and turns of the last few years, I wouldn't bet everything on that. Um, but uh, given the 14 years of decline and stagnation, arguably, as I've said, beyond that as well, I just want to know just how bad this is likely to be for much of the population. 
particularly, of course, let's say the bottom half, uh, people who live, whose lives are very insecure, who are always one pay packet away from being impoverished, uh, for whom sudden increases in living costs spell disaster, actually, for them and their family, many of whom, of course, are in debt, and now the cost of being in debt has gone up because interest rates have been hiked. Now, I want to know what the likely impact of Liz Truss's proposed policies are, particularly tax cuts. I say trust because there's absolutely no chance whatsoever that Rishi Sunak is going to become leader of the Conservative Party and thus Prime Minister. I'm willing to bet everything on that. Um, if if not, that humanity is going to last for the next 10 years. I'm definitely betting everything on that. I also want to know about Labour's policies. Let's try to stifle my laughter there. What are Labour's policies? Uh, and what likely are they going to make a big difference as things stand? I mean, interestingly enough, Gordon Brown's just come out calling for an emergency budget. Uh, to stop mass impoverishment of the British population. But I'd like to know, you know, maybe Labour might come up with something more ambitious than they could, because at the moment they, I, they haven't offered barely anything that meets the scale, scale of the crisis affecting British society. I also know what the actual answers are. Well, actually, if we had our ideal government, which we're not going to get for a long time, um, we will one day, <laughs> taking a scenic route. Uh, what would the ideal policies be to deal with this massive crisis. Now, quick admin as ever. Um, what we're going to do just quickly, so given what I'm talking about, the cost of living crisis and the impact of people's lives, we'd like to do some videos uh, with our brilliant documentary maker, um, our videographer, Jack, um, which just charts the impact on people's everyday lives. Um, now we pay him union wages. That's now £400 a day. That's what a union rate is. We always promised we'd do that. But we need your support to make these documentaries happen. And we don't have billionaire donors, I'm afraid. They're not that interested in those sorts of videos. So if you want to support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84, you just do a quid a month, three quid, whatever. Then that will enable us to get Jack, a brilliant videographer, to make those videos. Uh, we're also doing a video at our annual treats at Labour Conference and Conservative Conference. I'm still waiting for my press credentials to come through for both of those. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, but that's what we intend to do. If you're watching live, do press uh, the YouTube link. I know many of you watch on Facebook and Twitter, but it's nice if you watch on the YouTube channel. So do press the link and press like and subscribe. You can put uh, questions to our expert guests using Super Chat. I will read out your questions to put them to them. And I will also thank you individually at the end because you're supporting the channel and being great and also listen to us on the podcast oh yeah quickly me and ash Sar if you're listening to this before tuesday me and ash sarkar are doing an event at the edinburgh finch festival on tuesday at 4 30 with ian dale so just google me and ash sarkar edinburgh finch festival tuesday um and uh yeah be great to see you there come and meet us in person that'd be fun she will be much funnier and more intelligent than me because she is all of those things. Before I bring in our guest, let's just start with David Blanchflower, who's an, a senior progressive economist. Um, just with his summary of where we're at and based on what the Bank of England have done. Well, I thought it was the worst economic news in my lifetime, actually. Um, I thought that the forecast was really very scary. There's nine occasions in their report today where they talked about recession. But I have to say, I thought most of the stuff that the Governor of Bank of England said was poppycock. I think the answer is that uh, he has to stand back and say, well, should I have raised rates further in the past? No. Um, and what's coming? And what's coming is actually 
um, a very fast decline in inflation. And it's not just about oil prices. Oil prices have fallen for the last 42 days, but we have evidence around the world, timber prices, food prices, freight costs, fertilizer prices are collapsing around the world. And actually built into that forecast, which you sort of stopped, is actually the probability that we're going to see deflation coming. Because if you look back, the Bank of England has, a da has data which says that the usual response from a big burst of inflation is deflation. And the real problem is actually going to be a huge recession, probably la longer than the Great Recession, and probably deeper. And so they're going to have to, I think you're going to see a major U-turn later in the year. And, and unemployment hurts people much more than inflation that appears to be going away. Now, I will, I'll ask our guests shortly what their response to that is. But first, let's just bring them in. Let's bring in the brilliant James Meadway and Grace Blakely, two fantastic economists, writers, authors, many things. They've got many hats. How are you both doing? Good, thank Very well, you. How are you? You're looking very, very well, if you don't mind me saying so. The picture of summer. James is in Bulgaria. I you're talking to both of us. <laughs> yes, I was actually. You both got radiant. <laughs> I wasn't excluding anyone from the radiant description. Uh, no, you both look, both look wonderful. I've stopped talking about your physical appearances now. You both look great. James Meadway's <laughs> in Bulgaria. Grace, you're probably, are you in London at the moment? Yeah. I don't even know. You are in London. I am, yeah. Right. Okay, guys, let's just start. So uh, before I bring in, just I, I'm obviously interested in David Blanchflower's analysis there. But before we, I ask you about that, what what is the cause of this? Because the Bank of England say this is just Russia's invaded Ukraine. That's prompted this. There's a cost to the war. That's what they said. And the cost of the war is this. Is that correct? Is that why we're in this mess? Grace? Um, no, <laughs> that's not the only reason. Um, so uh, these inflationary pressures really started to pick up as we emerged from lockdown. So obviously the great lockdown is the kind of synchronized um, closure of much economic activity that took place during the height of the pandemic um, was termed. That led to lots of different stuff happening. So kind of factories shutting down, um, the production of various kind of forms of natural resources shutting down. Um, crucially, um, the uh, the closure or kind of um, slowing down of a lot of logistical networks that keep the global economy kind of, you know, going basically. And um, so I had a, a piece in Tribune not that long ago looking at the collapse in um, global shipping and the impact that that had on inflation. It was huge, basically. Um, you know, we have this very like uh, tightly interconnected network of ships uh, going into huge ports in, you know, um, uh, yeah, very, very busy ports in um, certain parts of the world. And when um, many of those ports shut down um, or, you know, things couldn't be unloaded because workers weren't around or we couldn't get them to factories because there weren't truck drivers or whatever, um, that basically sent the whole system into complete and utter turmoil. Um, it meant that there were loads of boats unable to dock. Um, and so lots of seafarers actually stuck at sea for very long stretches of time. Um, anyway, I write more about that in the article, which I, people can find uh, on the Tribune website if you want to, the real details of that, which I actually find very interesting, but other people don't. So anyway, global shipping uh, came to a halt. And that led to a, a kind of year or so later, a massive increase in shipping costs. Um, which then, you know, a few months after that translates into much higher consumer prices because we import pretty much everything. Well, not everything, but we import a lot of the goods that we consume. And um, when you're paying higher prices for those to be transported, then that is going to have an impact on consumer prices. So there was that, which was a, a big thing. Um, there was the energy prices, which was a, a kind of similar sort of scenario. 
um, the big oil companies stopped producing as much during lockdown because we weren't using as much energy. Then we started using a lot of energy very quickly again, and there kind of wasn't quite enough. So um, uh, there was just a, a kind of um, time bound shortage there. They were supposed to actually use that time to invest in renewables, but most of them didn't. Um, and then there are um, links to that uh, key shortages of particular you know, commodities that are linked to the war in Ukraine and also the shortages of fossil, fossil fuels. So there's a big semiconductor shortage at the moment, which is well, has been for a while down to the fact that a lot of factories had to shut down. And also the fact that, you know, uh, the Ukraine um, produces 90 percent of the world's neon which is key input in, input to uh, semiconductors. Semiconductors go into everything. So there's this whole kind of perfect storm of stuff which brings together the lockdown, the emergence from lockdown and um, the war in Ukraine um, that has basically put a lot of pressure on all of the kind of, you know, very complex networks and supply chains that underpin the global economy and the stuff that we consume on a day-to-day -day basis. What's a little masterclass? This is what this is what we have both these two brilliant experts on for. Bam, bam, bam. Sorted. James, what would you like to add to that? Just just one thing, really, because I, I agree with all that. Obviously, the, the, the shock of COVID and trying to close down great chunks of, of the economy, putting bits in lockdown and, and other restrictions. I mean, this, is, this is playing out now. The after effects of that are playing out now uh, in the form of this inflation spike that Grace described very well. There's also still actually the impact of, of China still doing lockdowns. These are easing mm. off now. There's still various restrictions in place. Uh, and of course, the other one to, to chuck in, if you're looking at the big external factors as well as Russia invading Ukraine is, is just this worsening, ongoing and worsening set of uh, environmental crises that, that extreme weather is becoming more and more prevalent. So it means that grain harvests are affected by floods and by droughts. The coffee harvest last year in various parts of the world has been affected by floods and droughts in, in uh, alternating uh, in Brazil and a, and a few other places. Semiconductors, which Grace mentioned, uh, were semiconductor production very heavily reliant on water. And there was a drought in Taiwan last year and this kind of uh, impacted production there. So you've got these really big external factors, um, a whole load of which aren't actually going to get better anytime soon. Like the environmental crisis isn't going to suddenly get better. This is going to get worse uh, from this point onwards. But the really, really crucial bit is that all of these big external factors, which the government and other people can point to and say, well, we can't really do anything about it. It's all arriving through the big mechanism we have uh, in this country and everywhere else around the world, which is to produce profits out of this. Uh, and that instability has fed into massive profits, uh, particularly for very, very large companies. If you take the top 350 largest companies listed on the London Stock Exchange, um, their profits are up 73% uh, since the pandemic. So it's a huge increase in their profits. So prices have gone up. Uh, wages haven't really gone up. And that means, obviously, profits have gone up. Somebody else is taking the difference there. And that's, that's what this instability is producing. The costs of all that instability, in effect, are being landed on most people who don't happen to own, you know, British Gas or BP or whatever. They just get paid wages and their wages are not keeping up with the price increases. And those price increases are feeding into very big profits. So if you want to do something about the cost of living crisis, you have to do something about the enormous profits. You have to squeeze those profits and either pay people more <coughs> or try and bring prices down. So David Blanchflower, just in that clip, he's obviously opposed to what the Bank of England had done by hiking interest rates. And he thinks actually what the biggest threat is a recession, mass unemployment, uh, not inflation. And actually inflation will start to come down. And he points to evidence that will happen. What's your take, 
Should we swap round this time? James, you can start. What do you think? Bank of England, uh, sorry, David Blanchard's analysis. Do you think actually inflation isn't the big threat and actually it will come down and interest rate heights aren't therefore the solution? Well, I, I agree with, with, with David about his uh, assessment of what the forecasts of the Bank of England say. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's hard to exaggerate just how bad the sets of numbers that the, the bank's computers have churned out uh, tell us it's going to be next year. It's a huge spike in unemployment, combined with also, by the way, a, a really disastrous decline in, in real wages. Real wages down over 7% by, by the end of, of next year. I mean, this is the biggest fall in living standards since the Industrial Revolution. That's what they're, they're saying is going to happen on top of the, the last one. It, it's, it's, so it's, it's dismal prospects there. Now, what, what Danny's arguing is that... The big thing here is that this will turn to recession and this will reduce demand and this will pull prices back down. My disagreement with that, and this is where I'm even more gloomy than he is, is that, look, all these big external factors, the, the environmental shocks, the war uh, in Ukraine, um, the general sort of political instability, you can throw China and Taiwan and the US into this as well. None of these things go away. And some of them are definitely going to get worse, like the environmental shocks. And that is all in producing much higher costs and difficulties of doing business around the world, which is translated into higher inflation. So in other words, we're going to get higher inflation. It'll come down a bit from, from 13% this year, but it's not going to drop uh, as rapidly as anyone would like. You can get higher inflation uh, alongside very low growth. So you get what's called, coined in the 70s, stagflation, stagnation plus inflation. Danny thinks it's going to be recession plus deflation, falling prices, which is a more sort of, it's an easier thing for economists to deal with because it means their models are working. But I think we're definitely in a fairly strange new time now where environmental crises and big instability in the rest of the world is actually turning into real impacts for people in this country. Yeah, I really agree. Um, I, I think, yeah, it was um, right, James, that you brought up that those questions around uh, not just climate breakdown, but kind of the broad ecological um, destruction that we're seeing across a whole number of different um, ecological systems and the impact that that's going to have over the long term um, on our standards of living, because, you know, we cannot we can no longer um, or capital can no longer continue to treat nature as a free gift that it can just kind of take from without consequence, without reinvesting, without um, caring for the natural environment. And that has really been the foundation of capitalism and growth within capitalism um, for many, many years now. The other thing I think um, that, you know, we're seeing that, that poses a longer term threat and that maybe means that inflation doesn't come down as quickly and easily and that, um really just feeds into this pattern that we've had with um, you know, several recent crises of falling living standards in the immediate aftermath, is that you've had this pattern for quite a long time now where during moments of crises, during moments of crisis, um, states step in to protect profits. Um, and usually what you'd expect in a kind of big capitalist crisis is that, um, you know, uh, there's um, businesses stop investing, you then get, um, you know, high rates of unemployment, um, you get uh, lower demand in the economy more generally, you get a big collapse, a big collapse in prices, lots of um, businesses fail because they're no longer kind of able to produce a profit, they're no longer able to compete. Um, and then, you know, things get to a, a minimum in terms of prices, in terms of output, in terms of employment. Um, and then they start to pick up again from that minimum. And, you know, maybe there's a whole new cycle based on a new technology. What we've seen really in most recent crises is government stepping in to support the profits 
of big businesses um, and to just ensure that they survive much longer than they otherwise might have. And that's been both governments providing active support and also central banks stepping in and saying we're going to protect asset prices. So asset prices aren't going to fall during recessions in the way that you might expect. The, the um, most obvious way that we see this is with house prices. So, you know, you would have thought after a big housing crisis like 2008, house prices would have fallen much further than they did in the aftermath. Actually, they ended up increasing substantially um, and you know we're seeing a, a similar pattern and i imagine we'll continue to see a similar pattern um in the wake of this crisis um but also you, there is this question of um the way in which government supporting big businesses affects the structure of the economy and it really just embeds inequality in the wake of a crisis um because first and foremost the biggest businesses are able to survive they're then able to kind of buy up their smaller competitors um, and so consolidate even further and then they're able to basically, because they're monopolies effectively or oligopolies, exploit workers and consumers much more easily. I mean, this is actually why we're seeing this uh, this issue of like really high profits during this um, crisis. It's because um, costs are rising, yes, but the largest companies have been able to basically increase their prices more than the increase in costs. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy for them to do that in an inflationary environment because I'm not going to be able to go up to a company, you know, I'm not going to go into Tesco's and be like, oh, you've increased the price of, you know, your wheat uh, 0.5 times more than the actual underlying costs. There's just not information I have access to. So it's easy for these companies to kind of use their power um, as, you know, when they're based their market power, when they're effectively oligopolies, um, it's not really true with supermarkets, but it's true in a lot of other sectors um, to increase prices more than um, they otherwise might have if they were just reflecting an increase in costs. And that extra goes to profits. Um, at the same time, they're obviously holding wages down, which, again, means, you know, they're able to kind of exploit workers more effectively. Um, so basically companies, big businesses are going to be protected over the course of this crisis. That means we're going to leave it this crisis with more powerful monopolies, um, lower wages, lower levels of investment as well, because businesses, large businesses and oligopolies and monopolies don't really need to invest. They can just kind of rely on their market power. And that's a long term problem again in our economy is that we're, we're seeing very low levels of investment and all of those things combined with things that have really been taking place over the last kind of 40 to 50 years within world capitalism suggests that this crisis is actually one of a kind of long line of crises, each of which have their roots in different kind of, you know, exogenous factors, but all of which feed into this longer term trend, which is basically of elites taking more and more and more out of our economy and never really um, feeling the effects of that, never really having to deal with the consequences of their, of their actions. Um, and the, the poor and actually everyone else, including the middle classes, getting less and less and less. Just, I mean, you've both kind of already touched on this, to be honest with you, but um, obviously in your answers, because it's just, I'm asking this because of the title of the show, so just to kind of uh, really hammer this down. I mean, it, it kind of relates to Caleb Holton asked, with wages being squeezed and interest rates going up in a country with a high level of personal debt, could we see a 2008-style crash on top of all this? Now, this is actually, firstly, I, I suppose, very different in that it's not a financial crisis. The mm -hmm. banks aren't likely to crash in the current context. So just maybe clarify that. But in terms of the actual impact, the real economy, people's living standards, how much worse <laughs> is it or how comparable is it to what happened in 2008? Mm -hmm. Who went first last time? Oh, yeah, Grace, it's your turn. Um, so... As far as I know, I haven't looked into all the details of, you know, bank balance sheets or, you know, kind of read up on um, the uh, Bank of England's kind of assessment of the stability of the financial system. But as far as I think we know, the banking system is 
more slightly well is more stable quite a lot more stable than it was before um 2008 um, and there is relative to the size of the economy not as much debt um as there was again before that crisis there is still a lot of debt um the question as to whether or not that then becomes um a you know potential threat to financial stability i think depends on the scale of the crisis the other thing to bear in mind of course is that a lot of regulation has emerged in and around the banking system mm -hmm. to change the way that banks are funding themselves, to change the way that they are protecting themselves against risk, etc. Um, and, you know, people were complaining about that actually before this crisis, saying the banks weren't lending enough because of all this excess regulation. Um, you know, it's not actually as much regulation as you would probably like to create a truly financial, uh, stable financial system, but it is still more. Um, so, you know, as far as I know, in the UK, I don't think that we are currently in danger of a big financial crisis of the kind that we saw in 2008. In fact, if you look over to the US, for example, bank profits have been extremely healthy over the course of the last couple of years, primarily because they've been helping big companies merge with each other or acquire each other, and because they've been doing their own trading and been able to take advantage of what's been going on in financial markets. Um, there was a big issue around non-performing loans. So businesses and households being unable to pay their loans at the beginning of this crisis. But we did see a lot of relief being put towards supporting households um, to be able to and businesses, sorry, to be able to pay those loans. So, you know, we had huge amounts of money basically chucked at uh, banks via businesses uh, who owed those banks loans, um, you know, through various different support packages that were provided by, you know, US, UK, European, um, uh, yeah, uh, authorities and governments. Um, so that kind of, you know, pushed the immediate threat of the financial crisis out of the way. Um, and, you know, a lot of those loans still exist. And there is a question about what to do with those loans. So, you know, for example, if you've got a lot of businesses who've borrowed a lot of money and now they're thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive into the immediate future. Do you, there was a, an idea that you would convert the loans that the government had given to those businesses to equity which would basically be a kind of form of nationalization of those businesses, a lot of which are quite small, which would be very strange. Um, or do you kind of provide relief? Ultimately, what's interesting about this crisis is that that liability, um, the liability of a lot of businesses has been transferred from um, the financial sector onto the government. So a lot of the time it's really up to the government to say, are we going to allow all these businesses to default? And it's, I think, unlikely that they will do that. So there is a lot of debt, but it's not as unstable as it was before 2008. And it's not, you know, the, the leverage that's in the financial system um, isn't uh, going to create as many difficulties as it did before the 2008 financial crisis. Having said that, the instability that does exist um, that will come from, um, you know, not particularly secure forms of lending. You know, there was all this talk before um, this crisis about the instability in kind of auto loan markets, lots of different kind of um, smaller forms of lending that, um, you know, are themselves being securitized in the way that mortgage lending was in the run up to the financial crisis and where households, you know, that if you are about to be bankrupt, the first thing that you're going to stop doing is you're going to stop paying for your car. So there's a potential there for some of those debts to go bad. Um, and, um, and some potential for kind of consumer debt, so like credit card debt, um, non-mortgage debt, because I think house prices will probably remain high. The Bank of England will really do quite a lot to ensure house prices may remain high. Um, those could kind of become unstable, but they're not really big enough to cause like a kind of 2008 style financial crisis. And again, it all comes down to what the government decides to do, which is what makes this crisis interesting. Because yes, there is a lot of potential financial instability, but it's not 
you know, going to come immediately from, say, one bank collapsing and then other banks not being able to kind of call in their loans. It will come from lots of businesses being like, oh, we're not going to be able to pay back our debts, but we owe those debts to the government. So what the government going to do about it? James? No, I'd agree with all that. I mean, the the, the basic issue, if you mean literally a 2008-style crisis, then, then Grace is, is right. There's been a, a lot of effort put in since 2008 and 9 into trying to make sure that that can't happen again and it's been relatively successful in making your all of our big financial institutions you know the major banks behave differently to how they were the kind of systemic very large risks very big risks that banks have built up uh, don't exist in the same way and if there are really sort of risky peculiar bits uh, of the financial system that might keel over they tend to be more marginal it's not like you have the, the biggest investment banks on the planet have these uh, completely toxic made-up assets sitting inside them in quite the same way any, anymore the regulation's different the capacity of government to step in is different so, so you don't get literally a 2008 crisis what you actually get is something that, that's, that's frankly is, is worse which is that you have a, a crisis of not financial system, which then turns into the rest of the economy going to a recession. But you have something that starts in uh, the, the, the way the economy actually produces things. So that's COVID rolling into this round of inflation, turning into potential for unemployment down the line and falling real wages. All of these things are happening quite separately to the financial system because it's it's a real impact. You know, if you really do have a pandemic, that isn't because you've uh, got a collateralized debt obligation that's gone off. It's not something you've made up. It's not fictitious. It's a real thing. It really affects how we all uh, can work with each other. And the effects of that play play out further on. Same thing with extreme weather around the world. Same thing yeah. if Russia invades Ukraine. That's a real uh, factor, which might then turn into a kind of financial crisis down the line. But it looks at this point in time that that would be more contained than you had in 2008. It's not this great financial explosion which turns into everything else. But Grace is also right to say that just because from the point of view of the system, this doesn't look quite as bad. I mean, there are moments of, of potential instability, which you know, cryptocurrencies is potentially one, the entanglement of the financial system in that. Uh, China is regularly held up as, you know, look at all this debt and look at the property market. That's a perennial favourite for people looking for things to get uh, gloomy about. There are things there, but it's not the systemic problem in quite the same way as it was in 2008. It's a personal problem that if you personally are seeing uh, the price of essentials going through the roof, your wages not moving and a whole load of debt you have to pay, that is a personal disaster. And that starts to turn into, incidentally, a mechanism for recession because you find people saying, OK, I have to spend all this money on rent, on heating and on debt. I'm not going to go and spend on a whole load of other things I might have done otherwise. And that's the mechanism that produces recession further down the line. So yeah, I agree with James on that. Um, just very quickly, I realised initially after I said that that I hadn't mentioned China, and China is another very interesting example here of um, a society in which there is a huge amount of debt that's built up over a very long time, um, and debt that exists not just in the household sector, but also in um, the corporate sector and in the financial sector. And again, the financial sector and the corporate sector work very differently in China, and they're very inter in, you know intertwined with the state. Um, but the interesting thing there about China is that it really reinforces this point that the problem that we have with debt at the moment isn't a problem that's just confined to the financial system. It's really a choice for governments as to what they're going to do about that debt. In China, that's very, very clear because pretty much all the debt, not all of it, but a lot of it comes from state-owned financial organisations and banks that provide leverage as they're told to by the state. Um, and so, you know, whether or not massive Chinese property companies or, you know, other big companies collapse in China because they're over indebted is pretty much up to the Chinese state at this point. And it has this line to tread between 
adding more and more debt into the system and you know promoting growth and you know creating financial stability um so this these questions are out de- about debt and leverage hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Are increasingly not just economic questions, not just financial questions, they're actually political questions, which I think makes this crisis actually more interesting than a lot of previous ones. Although this was obviously kind of a similar case in 2008 with the banks. So Liz Truss is soon to be our ruler. She's going to become the prime minister. There's no chance bearing some almighty upset that Rishi Sunak is going to be prime minister. I mean, look, it's pretty horrifying, Liz Truss becoming prime minister. There's something funny about Rishi Sunak's implosion. I mean, I mean, obviously, I think they're both politically toxic. Both of them have uh, competed with each other over, over various politically unhinged uh, perspectives, policies that they've thrown into this farcical leadership race but anyway she's going to become prime minister now let's just have a look at what she has been arguing and this is on corporation tax so Rishi Sunak actually increased corporation tax um let's just see what she said under the current proposals our corporation tax would go up to the same level as France and 10 points ahead of Ireland and I really worry about our capacity to attract that investment into our economy if we do that. You simply can't tax your way to growth. And I'm afraid the very high taxes we have at the moment, a 70-year high, are likely to lead to a recession. And that's what the Bank of England is predicting. Now, a MP who's backing Rishi Sunak uh, makes a counter-argument here. We've been reducing corporation tax for some years, and actually you haven't seen business investment go up. And that's why we had that slight change of tax. So what we said is for the top companies, the top 30%, because all the small businesses are protected, corporation tax will go up, but we'll also have some of the most generous capital allowances anywhere in the developed world. And that's what we did last year with the super deduction, which was the biggest um, business tax cut I think that we've ever had. And I'm just curious why you think that approach isn't the right way. So- and just, just also, Jared Lyons, who's an economist uh, at Net Wealth, um, and here he is supporting Liz Truss's policy of, of policies of tax cuts. The key thing in terms of domestic politics is that today's forecasts show clearly that we face both an inflation problem and an economic slowdown with weak domestic demand. And it's that weak domestic demand that justifies the policies of Liz Truss in trying to boost the economy through targeted tax cuts and easing fiscal policy to help those people most in need. So I've got divorcees because she's talking about corporation tax cuts, but she's also talking about other cuts as well. Now, the 
point made there by that Tory MP, I've forgotten her name, I'm sorry, but supporting Rishi Sark anyway. And and she makes a very, a very well, look, for ages, the po- point about cutting corporation tax was that it would more than pay for itself because it would attract investment and encourage companies to use the extra money to invest in their businesses and hire people and all the rest of it. And that hasn't happened. I mean, that's why... Uh, you know, all those projection predictions were, were wrong. Uh, <clears throat> that's what we argued at the time would happen, and that was proven correct. Uh, and this, therefore, raising corporation tax was done in order to bring in m- more money. Um, so I'm just interested, just generally, in what your thoughts are on Liz Truss's economic policies. Rishi Sunak arguing it will increase inflation, uh, those tax cuts as well. Should we start with you, James? What do you think? Liz Truss, she's going to be prime minister. She's Obviously, unless she pulls a Keir Starmer and reneges on all her leadership promises, she's going to do on these tax cuts. What do you what do you think corporation tax and more broadly the other tax cuts she's offering? What impact that will have on the economy? Well, it's look. I'm afraid I didn't recognise the, the Tory MP making the case, but it was absolutely right. We have cut corporation tax for a number of years. It hasn't produced a, an increase in investment. The evidence that cutting corporation tax encourages companies to go off and invest simply isn't there. That what's actually happened in Britain, and it's quite familiar, although it's worse here than other places, is that really quite high corporate profits and corporate tax cuts have just encouraged big corporations basically to hoard cash. Um, companies in Britain big companies especially, are sitting on something over 800 uh, billion, which is more like 900 billion uh, pounds in their bank accounts. It's just sort of sitting there. They're not doing anything with this money. They're not going off and investing and cutting uh, corporation taxes won't suddenly induce them to go and spend that money or to go and invest and to do all these things that they're supposed to do. They'll just carry on hoarding. They'll just carry on funneling uh, wealth up uh, to to the the tops at 1%, 0.1% in society. That's the mechanism at work here. When you say, let's do corporation tax cuts, you're increasing that mechanism. You're funneling, you're saying you want to funnel even more wealth in that direction rather than using it productively. The smart thing to do is actually take some of that money that the corporations have and spend it on productive investment. If Jared Lyons, your economist there, is worried about demand, if you want to increase demand in the economy, you need to give money to people who are actually going to spend it. That's what demand is. If you give more money to corporations, they don't spend. So you've got to give it to people. So that means a pay rise for everyone. It's a pay rise for everyone in the public sector and pay rise for everyone in the private sector. Oh, and PS, you should probably try and cap uh, the rise in prices and actually cap it. Don't increase uh, the gas price by 75% or whatever it is now for for this autumn. That give people more money to spend if you're worried about demand in the economy. And you think, and this is something interesting with Liz Truss, if you think it's okay for government to borrow money now, I mean, that is quite striking about her economic policies. Forget the debt and deficit, forget all the stuff that for a decade we were told is the most important thing uh, that could possibly exist. Got to get rid of the debt, got to get rid of the deficit. Now it's something, don't care, we're going to do a big handout to corporations and, and pretend it's going to encourage demand and encourage investment. It, it, it's nonsensical economics. But I think for those of us who are inclined to say, well, actually, the fact that debt and the deficit was used to justify austerity and now that's being ditched, that's actually a, a step forward for us. And we should get out there and say, OK, if we're going to spend this money, spend it on something useful. Don't spend it in effect on big handouts for big corporations and their owners. Grace. Yeah, I think, you know, just to kind of explain the differing views, um, like economic views, really, as to um, why uh, corporate tax cuts should or shouldn't have an impact. um, The view that you're kind of hearing there from Liz Truss is basically just that whether or not businesses invest is all determined by the costs of that investment um, relative to what they're going to get out of that that investment. And really, you know, that kind of wing of, uh, of the economic expression 
focuses mo most on the costs of investment. So it's about interest rates. It's about um, so the cost of borrowing. Um, it's about you know the rates at which you're levying corporation tax. So that's kind of you know effectively a cost that you have to uh, account for. Um, and you know anything else that's going to feed into the costs of a company uh, investing. Now you know intuitively you can tell that that isn't going to be the only or even the primary thing affecting a business's decision whether or not to invest. And the person who realised this arguably first was Keynes because he said look if I'm a business owner and I've got loads of money but I'm looking at the economy and no one's buying anything other businesses around me aren't investing in anything and you know I've just seen a announcement from the Bank of England saying we're going into recession of course I'm not going to invest in building a new factory or in you know research and development because there's not going to be anyone who's going to buy my products so this problem of the fact that you've got uncertainty about the future and when people are pessimistic, they think that bad things are going to happen in the future, so their investment isn't going to pay off. Means that it doesn't matter how low you have corporation tax, if businesses aren't confident about the future, they're not going to invest. It's the same thing that we've seen over the last 10 years, um, which is just that, you know, the broad, whilst we had some pockets of growth, primarily in asset prices, the broader economic outlook was never particularly good. You know, there was maybe some murmurings in around 2017, 2018, that, oh, you know, growth was turning and employment was high and everything was great. But it wasn't long after that before people started talking again about recession. Um, so that's the problem. That's why businesses aren't investing. And it's been a long-term problem. And the way that you respond to that is not by saying, right, okay, we'll carry on cutting corporation tax. You know, the definition of insanity is doing something over and over again and, you know, expecting it to work, but it hasn't in the past. Don't carry on doing that. What you need to do is actually, you know, create confidence in the economy. People are very, very scared right now. And that goes for households and businesses. You know, if you look at levels of business and consumer confidence, they're terrible, really, really bad. And it's not surprising because people are genuinely scared about their capacity to be able to pay their bills, let alone go out and buy stuff. Businesses, again, scared about being able to pay their debts, let alone invest. So what you need is a kind of signal from government to say, you know, the poor will be protected and we will invest in order to make sure that, you know, there is money and demand circulating around the economy. So let's say, you know, the government did uh, decided on a big um, investment program to facilitate decarbonisation that then helps demand to pick up in the rest of the economy. Now, there are questions around the timing of that, the scale of it during a moment of inflation, because a lot of the resources that you'd need to do that would be very expensive. But as we've just heard, a price, the prices of a lot of stuff are coming down. You know, we're going into a recession, which means that prices should start to fall because there's going to be less demand for the resources that are available, which means it would be a good time at some point, you know, when prices are a little bit lower to start saying, right, OK, let's use this moment. We've had this inflationary crisis in large part because the cost of fossil fuels are really high. Let's use this moment to decarbonize, to invest in decarbonization, pick up demand and secure the foundations of our economy into the future. Just going to try and rattle quickly through the last part, because I said 45 minutes for both of you, so I know you've got things to do. So just quickly. OK, Andrew Bailey, Bank of England governor, paid half a million pounds a year, argued that he, he argues that workers fighting for more wages will push up inflation. Let's just hear quickly. If everybody tries to beat it, it doesn't come down. It gets worse. That's the problem. There's a second problem, and this is very important. I've said this a number of times. I put this in terms of high pay rises and high price increases because in that world it's the people who are least well off who are worst affected because they don't have the bargaining power. And I think that is something that you know I would say broadly we all have to be very, very conscious of. That's 
Yeah, I mean, inflation uh, being driven by workers fighting for more wages. So just let's try, let's do this kind of pithily because I'm wasting your time now. <laughs> um, Grace, quickly, let's go. I'm not going to lie. I couldn't hear that very well. But I think, oh. what, what, was he saying that we should be worried about uh, workers with low bargaining power arguing for higher wages? He, was, yeah, yes. he, he was saying that. The, the other way around. He, yeah, he's yeah, saying okay. that. This he basically that he was saying he he's was talking saying, about well-paid workers yeah he's saying they're yeah. the ones who are organized so they're the ones who yeah. get higher wages but then they'll drive up inflation and therefore yeah. low-paid workers which is, who aren't which organized is legit, to be fair you know when he initially came out with this stuff around like workers shouldn't be arguing for for wage increases um it you know it's space it was insane and like everyone responded to it as such because he earned huge amounts of money and most people in the economy uh, do not earn anything near the amount that the bank of the, the governor of the Bank of England earns, um, and should definitely be organising and arguing for for wage increases in line with inflation. Um, if we're seeing, you know, very high wage increases in parts of the economy where professionals are earning huge amounts of money, uh, and those aren't being matched by wage increases at the bottom end of the economy, then yeah, that means inflation impacts lower paid workers more than it does higher paid workers. That's generally the case across the board because economic recessions and crises tend to affect uh, the least well off, those with the least power more than they do those at the very top. The solution to that isn't to say nobody should be arguing for wage increases. Um, the solution to that is to say, you know, we should be protecting people's wages and actually potentially um, giving higher wage increases to people at the bottom end of the income spectrum than we are giving to those at the top end of the income spectrum. How do you do that? Well, of course, you need to make sure that the lowest paid have the same amount of bargaining power as managers, executives, financiers, etc., who can say, oh, well, I'll just go leave my job and work for another massive multinational corporation in Wall Street rather than London. Workers at the bottom end of the income spectrum can't do that. They need to be organised. They need to be in trade unions. And that actually doesn't just go for the lowest paid. It really goes for anyone who is in a kind of, you know, non-professional, uh, managerial, fairly well-paid uh, job. So it just requires, you know, what Andrew Bailey is saying, you could interpret as saying, right, well, we need to make sure that workers at the, at the in the rest of the economy need to be unionised. Mm -hmm. Go on, Joe's quick. Yeah, quickly. Oh, look, I mean, Andrew's just given a, Andrew, as, as we now call him, because he's all our friend, um, has just given a, a brilliant um description and account of why you should join a union and this is the solution to it of course the missing term in what he says is the thing that is always 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 missing when you get this discussion in the kind of the mainstream and in the major economic institutions in britain which is that the rising prices we are experiencing right now is a result of profits being very very high it's not like it's quite simple economics often is a, a really simple subject and people spend a lot of time trying to pretend it's more complicated than it is prices have gone up wages have not gone up profits must have gone up so if you want to address the cost of living crisis and you want to make sure people uh, are being paid uh, more than they are because they're suffering at the minute particularly at the lower end of the income scale what you need to do is reduce the profits and pay people more or freeze the prices and hold the prices of some of the things they need to go out and buy it's not like this is the elephant in the room this is the thing that, that's sitting there so all this nonsense because the other thing that, that Andrew Bailey and a few people talk about is that you know wage price spiral that if workers go off he said this or hinted at it at the start if workers go off and ask for more money this will turn into you know prices uh, rising because companies will have to put up their prices to try and deal with the fact that workers are asking for more money well one they could shrink their profits 
uh, you know, if you take um, the total amount of price rises in Britain over the first six months of this year, 60% of it, just under 60% of it is due to company profits. That's where that money has gone. 8% of it is due to wage increases, right? So it's not a wage price spiral. And actually, you can see this really obviously. Uh, wages in Britain are rising about 4% on average, a bit over 4% on average at the minute. Um, higher than it has been for a decade, but prices are rising 9.5% or thereabouts, and it's going to go up to 13%. That's the headline rate of inflation forecast uh, for autumn. So it's not a wage price spiral. Wages are desperately trying to chase prices. It's the exact opposite of what Andrew Bailey is saying here. And I think people really need to be quite confident about taking some of these arguments on because they're really hammering the wage price spiral thing. They're really hammering the idea that you can't ask for a pay increase, lurking behind what the Bank of England is doing in putting up interest rates, by the way, and then talking up uh, unemployment and recession is the idea that if there's mm. unemployment and a recession, people will be too frightened to ask for wage increases. Mm. That way, you'll be able to restrain inflation. That's their theory. They never quite say it as openly as that, but it's very obvious what happens if you induce a recession or help induce a recession with interest rate rises, unemployment rises, other things being equal, workers find it harder to bargain in, in those conditions, and you can try and bring inflation down. So I think we have to push hard on the idea that there's a wage price spiral and argue continually that it's profits that need to be reduced so that real wages can increase. Just quickly, that's, a, that's a really good point. I just want to reinforce that, that like what the recession that we're going into comes from a lot of factors, but it is at least in part being induced by government and central banks. Um, and it is therefore a political question, not just an economic question. Just quickly, Labour. Sorry, I know we really have everyone here, so just let's do this quick. Uh, Labour and their policies. Let's have uh, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer's on holiday for the 18th of August. Um, and Rachel Reeves tweeted stuff but here's anyway they not really not really out on the uh, national uh, platforms uh, making case for anything but here's a few days ago they did this video labor will fight the next election on economic growth there is no task more central to my ambitions for britain than making the country and its people better off to do all that we need three things growth growth growth. Without growth, we won't get a high-wage economy. Without growth, we can't revitalise public services. Yeah, all right, okay, get the point. Um, Mick Lynch, who is uh, the RMT leader and is now the leader of the opposition, uh, and it's interesting because David Barty just asks, uh, we're hearing a lot of what, what should happen to Elbers and Lope, but the Tories and Power Labour are away from the wheel, what can we do? Unions don't seem mm -hmm. to be enough. General strike. Well, let's just hear a quick Mick Lynch. The uh, Mick Lynch, Mick Lynch, the legendary. Well, we may not get a general strike in the in the traditional terms, but I think we'll have a wave of solidarity action. I think we'll have a wave of people coming into disputes. We've got a, a new set of trade union leaders who are determined that they, their members should have their say, and the industrial organisation, rather than asking politicians to resolve our issues, is the answer. We'll do that for our own strong arm if we need to, not by waiting for people like Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves to get their act together and sort out what their ideas are. Yeah, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, so just quickly, and also, if you could quickly answer as well, I know this is taking the piss, but just on Brexit, because Tad Campwell asked the measurable effect on Brexit, and I saw someone complaining we haven't mentioned Brexit. So uh, quickly, what are like, Labour's answers at the moment? Are they enough? What are they? Uh, and just if you could just quickly say something about Brexit. Grace. <laughs> okay, great. Um, no, Labour's answers obviously aren't enough. Um, you know, we need collective action in all its forms right now. Um, when I say these things aren't just economic, they're political questions. Um, 
it, it means that it's very easy to kind of separate what's going on in the economy from what's going on in politics, from, you know, what you're doing on a day to day basis, from your organizing and that sort of stuff. But actually, those two things aren't separate. You know, the ruling class is extraordinarily well organized. The state will always step in to bail out the banks and big businesses, etc., because they are well organized. They know what they're doing when it comes to kind of collective action in order to maintain their control over the economy. The only solution to any of these problems, it's all very, you know, it's important and um, uh, good for us to be going out there and making alternative economic arguments um, just to explain to people what's going on and to kind of show that there is another way. But we're not going to get any change whatsoever if we don't have people organizing. And that means organizing in trade unions. It means organizing in the streets. It means organizing through campaigns like, for example, Don't Pay UK through consumer organizations. Um, it means, you know, getting involved in any form really of political activity uh, that will A, help to um, kind of create uh, a, a counter movement to resist the power of, uh, of our ruling classes and B, help to politicize people. Because I think this is the really big challenge that we face right now. Everyone knows that things are bad. Everyone knows that the climate crisis is coming, the cost of living crisis is here, there's a crisis of democracy. No one really quibbles with those challenges. The issue is that no one really knows what to do about it because you know the kind of society we live in, we are constructed to believe that we are all isolated individuals and that if there's a solution to say climate breakdown, then it lies in us recycling more. If there's a solution to the cost of living crisis, it lies in us being more responsible with our finances. Actually, what we need to do is get people into political movements and organise with one another to resist those changes together. Um, yeah. James. And if you could just tease something quickly about Brexit as well. Yeah, Brexit. Oh, yeah, okay. So, um, look, it's had, obviously, it's had some impacts and they're fairly uh, short-term impacts on, on the costs and difficulties of doing business here. I mean, its major impact really continues to be uh, kind of political. But you've got to put this in the context of what is happening in the rest of the world. It's not Brexit that's making the price of gas that we have to buy from Qatar go through the roof. It's, it's not Brexit affecting uh, the coffee um, harvest in Brazil. These are much, much bigger things than just decisions taken here. So it's it's worth a few percent on inflation, let's say, but it doesn't turn Britain into like the worst inflation hit country in Europe. I think it's Estonia and then you've got like 20% inflation. So it's there. It's a factor. The way the Tories are doing Brexit is certainly not helping. Uh, and this trust isn't going to make any difference to that, but it doesn't determine everything that's happening at a minute. We've got to put this in the global context very quickly on Labour. Look, they've been com caught completely uh, blindsided by uh, the crisis developing really since last autumn. That's when inflation started to pick up. They've never had a proper response. They had the windfall tax to start with, but the, as soon as they got gazumped by Rishi Sunak, that was blown out of the water. And I think they've been wandering around since. They're talking about growth by the way, as a way to avoid talking about redistribution. If you talk about growth, this thing that's going to happen in the future, and we're all going to be better off, and it'll pay for all our public services, you don't have to address the hard question right now of who you're going to tax to pay for those public services, because that's what you really need to, to get into. So you talk about growth instead. It's always something in the future. It's never about something right now. Now, I did see in the same Observer story that, that highlighted Gordon Brown saying Labour must do something, you know, he's right, uh, some lines from senior Labour figures, senior Labour you know, uh, sources saying we're looking very seriously at something big. And it has to be big at this point, because my guess is that Liz Truss, when confronted by an autumn that looks like exactly as Mick Lynch said, lots of strikes, solidarity action, people like call centre workers, dock workers at Felixstowe haven't been on strike before, or at least not for a very long time, uh, and spreading that action spreading across the economy because there's a demonstration effect here. You can see it's a good idea to do this. It gets results. Combined with what could be 
many hundreds of thousands of people saying they're not going to pay their uh, energy bills. I think the first thing that this Prime Minister Liz Truss will do if she arrives in office on the 5th of September will be to do a big old bailout for um, people's uh, gas bills in particular. And it will just be billions uh, going in that direction. And she'll do that and it will completely gazump uh, Labour unless they've already risen to the challenge. They are failing seriously the political challenge of this crisis. They're not coming out with the big thinking, big picture, big intervention ideas that it now needs. And you know, and the scale of this, just to, just to put a sort of figure on the thing, is that if you wanted to pay off the last price rise that everyone faced in this country on their gas bill, it was about 28 billion pounds. The IMF says, if you want to clear the poorest 40% for all the gas price rises this year in the country, it's about 30 billion pounds. The Tory commentator, Ian Martin, was saying we need 50 billion to get through the crisis in autumn. That's the kind of scale of figure that should be putting out now to make sure the government actually delivers something in autumn. Guys, amazing stuff. Sorry, we overran by 10 minutes. I'm really sorry. Uh, but you were both so brilliant and we got, I learned, I learned a huge amount. That was, um, we've covered the whole thing. That's it. Everything solved, sorted. Analysis, conclusions. Great. Uh, thank you both to both of you. Honestly, really, really appreciate having you both together as the dream team that you both are. Um, and, um, and the comments all just praising you about how great you are. So, well done. Uh, thanks for joining us. <laughs> and I'll, um, I will see you both IRL soon, I hope. Yeah. See you thanks soon. Thanks so much, Owen. Cheers, Owen. Thanks, Owen. Well, so see you in a bit. Bye, bye, bye. Uh, great stuff from both of them, as as always. Um, yeah, we mentioned Labour there. I just, I mean, someone like, you know, why even do this to yourself? Why bring up the emotional trauma of all of this? Keir Starmer um, and the Labour leadership uh, in general. So, Keir Starmer lied to become Labour leader in a systematic way, the most dishonest leadership campaign for any political party in the history of British democracy. Uh, he made a series of radical policy pledges and also party unity, which he then reneged on. Let's just give this, it's just so funny now. It's just like, it's just endless. Um, this is Keir Starmer during the 2020 leadership contest, standing on a picket line of striking UCU workers, those are academic workers. It's really important you get politicians to come out and support you uh, and stand with you in this. So I'm very proud uh, to do that, to be with you this morning and to support you through this campaign, both as the local MP for here, but also in the shadow cabinet uh, and as running as leader of the Labour Party, because my leadership, if I win it, will be standing with you and other campaigns like you so that we can win issues like this that are so important. Thank you very much indeed. I'm sorry, that's hilarious. It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Uh, and then he went and banned as, because uh, he said what he was going to do as leader, stand with workers, don't strike, fight for that. And then banned uh, shadow cabinet members from attending picket lines. No, it's just wanton dishonesty. And someone made this point actually on Twitter the other day about people screaming at me when I point out Keir Starmer's dishonesty. They're not actually saying he's not dishonest. They're just angry with me for pointing it out. They're like, don't mention it because you're helping the conservatives. Yeah, I mean, or, or, you know, it's this idea as well that I'll, um, I think they think that, you know, by me uh, saying Keir Starmer abandoned his policy pledges to the left, that will make Labour voters vote Tory or something. It doesn't even make any sense on its own terms, to be honest with you. It's just complete, it's just a joke, an absolute joke, a farcical joke, stood on a platform, reneged on it, and then his tedious supporters, um, uh, you know, their view is, well, we don't care if he's dishonest because we only care about dishonesty if it's from a politician we don't like. As long as we're not on, we're not on the receiving end with dishonesty. Those were left-wing people, the Labour members on the receiving end. We don't care about them. They can go, you know, they can go and jump. Um, yeah, I called um, 
the other day, the other week, I did a little angry rant about Keir Starmer's dishonesty, and I said his supporters online are the most annoying, ridiculous, tedious waitrose shoppers you'll ever encounter. That then caused an online storm. Waitrose was trending at number four in the United Kingdom mm. as a consequence. Various people, including John Swede, a journalist, um, intervened, uh, claiming that one of the founders of Waitrose was an anti-fascist and therefore shopping at Waitrose was an act of anti-fascism. Someone suggested that was uh, one of the most ridiculous things ever posted on the internet. And then he responded, telling them to go and fuck off. Sorry about the language. Um, just to be clear, I do sometimes shop at Waitrose. Um, I've got Waitrose, I've got Waitrose bags in the other room, actually. Um, they used to give free coffee when you went shopping, which was, they stopped doing that now. Um, yeah, I think the point I was making there is the most tedious, I said the most tedious Waitrose shoppers. So that's, you can self-exclude from that, can't you? Because, you know, that's like saying the most tedious gamers. So I'm not saying all gamers are tedious. I'm, not, I'm just saying the most tedious gamers. You know, I, not all Waitrose shoppers is what I'm trying to say here. But I think some people regard it as a hate crime being committed against um, centrist Waitrose shoppers. It's not a protected characteristic being a centrist Waitrose shopper or an affluent background. It's not. It's read the Equalities Act of 2010. You're not in there. And what I was trying to say is these were generally a kind of very, a, a certain type of middle-class professional. I know I'm a middle-class professional too, by the way. So again, I'm not, I'm not just lumping everyone into these categories. But people who support Keir Starmer tend to be from the salaried, middle-class, relatively middle-aged homeowners um, who basically see politics as a vibe rather than substance. And their main objection with the government is that they find it a bit embarrassing and vulgar and crude. Um, and they just want kind of to live in a... Richard Curtis movie, basically, where honesty and integrity are restored and everyone can just skip into the sunset happy because you don't have a prime minister saying embarrassing things. Um, they don't care about honesty or integrity. Um, they just, they just, they, they think Keir Starmer's one of their own tribe. So they just want him there. But anyway, he did lie to become leader of the Labour Party. He's offering absolutely nothing of any meaningful value in terms of dealing with this current crisis. Um, and um, I'm an independent commentator, and I will say the truth, whether you like it or not. That includes the most tedious Waitrose shoppers out there. Might go to Waitrose, actually, I need to get some lunch. Um, that is enough from me. Thank you to our brilliant guests, as ever. Um, it has been great. Oh, again, I will be in Edinburgh with Ash Sarkar on Tuesday at 4.30 at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, doing a talk with Ian Dale. Uh, so do Google that and join us, and then come and meet us. That'd be nice. Love to see you. Um, and we've got loads of stuff coming up. Uh, I'll just read out the super chats as well. Thank you so much to everyone. Uh, thank you to Woody Woodpecker, a regular global Tommy, Mummit M, uh, 99 Paint, Caleb Holland, Alistair, Tad Campwell, another regular, David Barretta, another regular, and Caleb Holland. Um, so we didn't an answer all of your questions at the end, but sorry, I, I took too much of their time. Someone told me not to wink. That's a Dominic Raab thing. I've just been compared to Dominic Raab. Well, that's put me in a lovely mood for the rest of the day. Thank you so much, Adrian, for that. Really, really appreciate it. Um, thank you, everyone. That was really... I was educated, and I hope you were as well. We've got oh, yeah, just quickly. <laughs> the end. Uh, press like and subscribe. Also, we're planning, as I've said, to do videos about the impact of the economic crisis on ordinary people. We've got a videographer who gets uni rates of £400 a day to do those videos. So if you want to support us doing the video so we can actually see the impact of people's lives, patreon.com forward slash ownjones84. 
um, and uh, also listen to us on the podcast. Oh, I'm way cuter than Dominic Raab. Thank you, Maximilian von Villiet. Um, all right, see you next Sunday, and we'll do all the stuff um, and interviews and all the rest of it. Um, do you support us? And we've got Noam Chomsky to encourage you to do that. Please support this channel for independent thought, discussion of the most important issues that we face. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.